every one of you. They, these are history students from Plettenberg Secondary School, which is the school on your left as you come into Plett from Neisner. And Mr. Jafta, are you here? Mr. Jafta is the caretaker. Did you bring your cane? Or was it vodka, lime, and lemonade? Um, yeah, so it's a privilege. And also a privilege to have um, Marietta, uh, who's the chairperson of P210, which is the local uh, support agency for education in the P2 municipality. And further field, eh, Marietta? Not only B2, eh? Only B2, right. And they do amazing work in development in the sc at school level. Um, it's also wonderful to be here for the second year, thanks to my good friend Leslie Jacobs from the B2 municipality who will open the, the festival shortly. Leslie has been amazingly supportive um, over the last two years. This is our second festival and he's intimated that he might even sponsor a third. So now I'm thinking about what we're going to talk about next year already. Um, and I thought of Traveller's Tales, actually, as a possible theme. But um, it's really nice to have somebody looking after your interest who's also f at a personal friendship level. And a similar person, I don't know if she's still here, Cindy, she's still here, Cindy Wilson Trollope who's the manager of the Plett Tourism Office, the private sector association office. It's also supported by the municipality. And for me, it's always been my privilege to work in the interstice between the private sector or private people and funding organizations and local, regional, and national government. I've had a very privileged life in the terms of what I've been able to do in that interstice, starting in my days in textbook publishing, um, and then moving later on into academic publishing. It's so lovely to have that nexus where people of like mind get together for common good. So without further ado, I'd like to ask Leslie to come and open the festival formally. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Mike asked me yesterday to not prepare anything, so I took him to heart, and I didn't prepare anything. He said, just say something. So, um, as we all are when we are about to do something, um, we look at what can we say that is significant uh, to actually start something like this. But the, the formalities is, welcome to Plettenberg Bay, if you're not from the town. The town itself sells itself. Um, for me, this part of my work I enjoy the most. And the reason for that is because um, throughout my life, I've been tormented, if that's a word, for this, by the theme that we're going to carry throughout the next two days, and that's war and peace. And in Paul, if you know Paul, you will know that there's a river and a train, a railway, that divides the town. And back in the day, it was much worse than, than today. So as I grew up, the only place where you could buy shoes was on the other side of town. My first pair of shoes, exactly was standard fear. Grade six, for those of you. Um, 
And as my mother bought this shoes, we walked back to where the taxi rank is. And because I was happy about the shoes, I made a noise. And she said, Nee, how you monty, what means it? And that was my first encounter with what you may expect. What you may experience as joy might be something else for somebody else. And the theme of war and peace um, in that context has taken me through quite a few steps in my life. As a youngster at the age of 85, I went to church one evening as an activist. The church was at the forefront of leading the struggle against the party back then. And we had a virtual protest, which was a peaceful protest, and we all lit our candles at the end of this fantastic speech that Dr. Alan Busak made, uh, Reverend A.B. Maad, may his soul rest in peace, arranged it. And we spoke about what do we need to do to take our stance in a peaceful way amidst the emergency regulations that we had back then. And we, we all knew how to do that. You know, we walked so many meters apart from each other. We carried our, our banners in, in some... We, we, we had all of that down. And as we walked up Klindrak and Stain Road, we encountered the other side of peace, and that's peace enforcement, where you literally, well, the, the end of that story is I was detained for 586 days, just three days after that. Um, so that is the story of war and peace that I've been um, seeing all through my life. And then I went to university, and I went to one of the Bush colleges, as we all do, as coloreds back in the day. Um, so I went to UWC, and I studied economics, but I thought I don't know anything about where I come from, and that's a, one of the cornerstones of, of life. You need to know where you come from, you need to know where you are, and where you're heading towards. So as an extra subject, I went to a place called Erup. Now, Mike, you will know Arab. Yeah. It, opened, it opened my world. And for the Plitzek students that's here, what we've been taught back in the day is that Jan van Riebeek came here, then South Africa started, and in part it was Abraham Habema, and then suddenly the world opened up, and from that point onwards, we had a history. The Arab Foundation taught me, no, that was not the case. There's been people before this. There's been other things and so forth, and so forth. And I'm sure that you learn that nowadays. But for us, it was withheld and it was a mystery. So we didn't have, we didn't have a sense of self, and, and not having a sense of self um, also created this, this thing where you felt inferior and you felt not equal and so forth. And having that as part of your DNA um, is a pretty big deal to deal with. So my eyes opened up when I started learning about where do you come from? Where do I come from? Where does the other person come from? And then how do we find a way, truly, to make things work? And we've been met in that with what they call back in the day the total onslaught policy. Um, and the more we try to, to um, go into... Um, this negotiations of peace, opening up the beaches so that we all can swim in the same beach, and so forth, and so forth. We were met with um, this other side that we, that we today all know about. So, Mike, 
This theme that you've chosen, I think, in opening up our eyes about where we come from, is important not only for me as a colored lighty, but it's important for the black child, it's important for the white child, and even as we grow older, we still learn how the history of us affects us. So for all of us here, I'm hoping that we have a fantastic time. Mike has put something fantastic together. I've spoken to Dr. Richard at the back, and he's first up to go. Um, and I'm excited to hear what he's got to say. And I bid you, come and learn it from each Come and just learn with other people. Thank you. Okay. Um, it's a real privilege and an honor to welcome Professor Richard Rubin here because I had the equal privilege of editing um, Mark de Jong's book, uh, which is available at the back, on the Hesekwa, the people of the Southern Cape. And Mark spends some time at the beginning of that book where he goes into the conflict between early um, Dutch colonists and um, the local uh, of the southern, of the southwestern Cape. And I remember as a child, I grew up in Newlands, Cape Town, and at the top of Kirschenbosch Gate, there was an almond hedge, or the remnant of an almond hedge, which was a national monument. And this is the hedge that Van Riebeek built in order to keep out the local um, inhabitants from the area demarcated for the settlers. Um, so that period of history has been somewhat neglected, as I'm sure you know. And so f to have Dr. Richards here who, to represent that history and to give us some insight into those early struggles is, for me, extremely exciting. Um, I'm going to have to read from my computer. Um, Reuben was born in Cape Town and has been involved all his life in both nation building and reconciliation. His professional career includes executive leadership positions across various sectors, business, academic, government, and civil society. He served as a technical resource person for countries in transition, having served as executive secretary of the Human Rights Violations Committee of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission and deputy director general of the Director of Special Operations, the Scorpions, within the National Prosecuting Authority of South Africa. So Ruben has a double interest in both anthropology and also criminology. He, in 2012, he established his own Ruben Richards Foundation, a South African non-profit organization dedicated to facil facilitating healing in traumatized countries. And in 2015, the foundation was awarded the prestigious National Reconciliation Award by the Institute for Justice and Reconciliation for, for his work in community healing and confronting those things which exclude marginalized people from mainstream society with particular reference to their work with criminal gangs and youth at risk, males and females. Ruben has consulted to various African countries on matters relating to trans transitional justice he was appointed by the Tunisian Truth Commission as an international observer of the first public hearings of that country in 2016 and also delivered a key, keynote address in Kigali, Rwanda to, get, to a gathering of African Truth and Reconciliation Commission executives 
on the topic of, quote, lessons learned from the field. More recently, he provided the National Peace and Reconciliation Commission in Zimbabwe with technical advisory services, and is now, this time we're talking, working with the Ethiopian Truth Commission. He holds degrees from Switzerland, United States, and South Africa, and has served as visiting academic to WITS, to Albion College in Michigan, and the Texas Christian University. He's got his own list of book publications, which are here in the back if you want to get any. And uh, he lives and farms uh, in the Western Cape. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honor and a privilege to ask uh, Professor Richards to address us on the subject of early in resistance to the Cape Dutch settlers. Can I ask that you put your cell phones off, please? Toilets are to the right at the back. And um, the coffee and tea is available free at tea time for you to mix and mingle. Thank you. Thank you and good morning, everybody. Goeiemorgen. Dumelang. We speak Kosa here, so it's Molweni. Molweni. Thanks, Mike, for the opportunity to share this short time with you. The name is Ruben Richards, uh, Cape Town born, as Mike says, but I'm a very confused Cape Townian because um, uh, I grew up taught to be confused about who I am. And in my pursuit to understand who I am, where I come from, where I'm going, one of the things that has happened in that process is the production of, of the books that you see. I bring uh, to your attention particularly my latest uh, publication. It's a two-volume work. It's called Bastards, or if you want to really swear, it's called Bastards. But I don't swear, so I call it Bastards. Bastards is the Dutch word for the English word bastard. Uh, bastards or humans, uh, it's a two-volume work. It runs to about a 1,000 pages. And uh, it has been, for uh, your interest, Leslie was endorsed by the Western Cape Education Department as an alternative history of South Africa and to be integrated into the high school history curriculum. I say that because we've got high school learners here, and my foundation donated a copy of each of those books to every single public school in the Western Cape. Now, I don't know where Western Cape starts and ends these days, but I suspect that you're out of that loop here. But certainly in... Uh, is it, eh? Listen, you can have that fight with Alan Windy. You don't have the fight with me. <laughs> But just so that you, you're aware, um, and what I'm going to be talking about, of course, comes from, from the books that I've written. Um, it has been field tested at some schools in Cape Town, and I can give you the technical report from Minister Debbie Schaefer as to which module in your history curriculum is linked to what chapters in the book and so forth. So that's just a bit of background uh, to my publications. I've been invited today to talk to you about early Khoikhoi resistance uh, to Dutch colonialism. Now, I've got to make a couple of preliminary remarks before we get to the resistance, um, because there's a bit of an oxymoron in, in the title. Early Khoikhoi is the one part, and resistance is the other part. Uh, you mean there were early Khoikhoi? Really? And you mean they actually resisted? Really? What did they resist and who did they resist? So let me help the uh, high school students 
In particular, just to give you some um, navigational beacons to, to my talk. So when we talk about South African history, the central marker, navigational marker, is the year 1652. That's the, that's the year that Leslie was born. Uh, <laughs> uh, 1652 is the arrival of Jan van Riebeek and his a party of 90 people on three ships uh, in, in Cape Town. And the narrative that goes with that assumes that that was Jan van Riebeek's first visit to the Western Cape. Now let's pause there. 1652 was Jan van Riebeek's second visit to Cape Town. Now that in itself is a bit of a shocker. Because nowhere in the history curriculum, I guarantee you, are you told that van Riebeek was here before 1652. Now you don't have to believe me. You simply have to read van Riebeek's journals, his diary. He tells you he was here. And I'll talk a little bit about why he was here and so forth. So that's the first point, the sec that, that he was here. The second point is this uh, notion that, you know, there were no people here really. Uh, and so we border on what, what is called the empty land theory. So if there's nobody here and you arrive, then the land is yours. Or as they say in Catan, the land is most yours. You, you, will, you will pick up from my accent that I'm, I'm from the Cape Flats. And uh, I rather stick to English. Want to say Afrikaans praat van die Kaapse vlakte. Dan ga jylle sê, jyr, die ou vloekam lelik, jong. Um, so let's pretend to be very smart in English about things. And, and sophisticated, unlike Mike. But, um, so. There were people here when he arrived. In fact, the people of the Cape, also known as Kaapmans, which is the Dutch word or Dutch description for those people, later became known as Hottentotten or Utentu, various, various names for it. So Hottentot is, is the name. It's, it's a politically incorrect name these days. Uh, and I'll come back to it because I've just printed out the first draft of my next book called Hottentot Hospitality. Now, if the Hottentots or the people of the Cape or the Kaapmans or the Khoi Khoi, whatever name you want to give those people, those people who live there in Cape Town along the coast, those are the people that the Dutch arrivals or the Dutch visitors first encountered when they arrived. Now, the 1652 visitors to the Cape, and there were visitors from an from a indigenous perspective. Here's people arriving, and they're visitors. The people of the Cape were quite familiar with entertaining, entertaining maybe a too strong a word, but hosting international visitors. You simply have to read the, the diaries of the captains of the ships that came to Cape Town. Uh, you may or may not, we, I, I guarantee you, you won't know this if you're, if you're from school, but in 1510, 1510, there was a war 
the first war in South Africa. Between the Hottentots or the Khoikhoi, whatever label you want to give, the people of the Cape, and the mighty Portuguese army headed by Francisco de Almeida. Now, if you go to Mossel Bay, you will find uh, de Almeida's name all over the place, and Vasco da Gama, and, and Bartholomew Diaz, and all of those Portuguese uh, names. The Portuguese and the local Cape Town people went into a war. And it's the only war that the Hottentots, or the people of the Cape, won. Thereafter, they lost every other war. But in 1510, they slaughtered the Portuguese army on the beach sands of what we today call Milneton Woodstock area. Again, you don't have to believe me. You simply have to read the, 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 the record of the Portuguese historians. And they say that that defeat in 1510, which I call the Battle of Blood River, no, the Battle of Salt River. There's always a river involved. The Battle of Salt River, 1510, was the most humiliating defeat suffered by the Portuguese Empire. Of all the battles that they've had in the world, that was the most humiliating. What happened, very briefly, I won't get into the, 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 the reasons for the war, except to say that the Portuguese came, they harassed the women, they kidnapped the children, and that was just unacceptable to the local Hottentot men or the men of the Cape, and they literally drove the Portuguese army into the ocean and literally drowned them, used the oxen and pushed them back into the ocean uh, and drowned them. That was 1510. doesn't feature in our history books anyway. And so there's this period of silence in, in, in the history books. And it's during that period of silence that people visited the Cape. So you read uh, Captain Houtman's logbook and he tells you about the 1595 uh, expedition uh, with three ships and how they were uh, hosted by the local people of the Cape. How many cattle they bought, how many sheep they bought, and so on and so on. And how the local people with their herbal remedies helped to cure the scurvy and the other diseases of the, of the people on those ships. I share this as background information so that you know that there were people living there, they were sophisticated people, they were knowledgeable people, and more importantly, they were people, local people. Yeah. Like this? Can you, can you hear me? Yeah? Okay. Sorry. Is it better? Okay. All right. So they were local people who knew what it's like to have interaction with international visitors. Now, if you put that information into South African language, then it goes as follows. If you think Cape Town is a place of colored people, you say, okay, so these colored people were quite familiar with entertaining white visitors. <laughs> that's sort of, that's how, we, how we process this information. Now, 1652, Van Riepik arrives with these visitors, and the local people 
assumed that eventually these visitors will go home. Because that's what all visitors had done up until that point. The average stay of these ships was between three and six months. Uh, but they eventually went home. Eventually they went home. In this instance, three years later, three years later, the local people, the local population, the people of the Cape, the Hottentots, fast forward, the coloreds, the whatever you want to call them, they stage a non-violent protest, but using very violent language. So they stage what, what we today call a sit-in protest. You know when we had fees must fall, the students went to go and sit in the office of the dean of the faculty or wherever. You just stage a sit-in. And we have a global movement called the sit-in movement. Uh, take over Wall Street and so forth. And the Bremner building and everything else. Well, listen, man. If you know your history, they would have gotten that clue from the Hottentots of 1655, because the first sit-in protest was what I call a hut-in protest. These local people decided to build their huts on the front stoop, if you want to use that language, on the front stoop of these white settlers. Now, I mean, really. And, and, and what was the dialogue? And all of this is very meticulously recorded in, in the uh, Dutch record for the first 10 years of Dutch occupation in South Africa. The dialogue went as follows. The locals say to Van Riebeek, listen Van Riebeek, we've asked you for three years now, what are your intentions? In other words, when are you planning to leave? What? This, the sound? The buzz. The guys disappeared somewhere, who knows where. Okay. Try again. If I stand here and talk? No, no, talk a bit closer. Yeah. I just want to see if I can get rid of that buzz. Do you need maybe not? Okay. Yeah, let's try without. Let's try. Would that, would that work better? Yeah, that buzz is... Can you, you can hear me? Yeah. Okay. All right. If you, if you can't, then you just wave at me and then I'll... Raise your voice. <laughs> raise the voice, yeah. All right. Uh, where was I? I was in Spain, wasn't I? No, where, you were sitting. Where was I? No. I'm just checking if you're awake. Just checking if you're awake. Okay, so they stage a sit in, a hut in protest. And with the hut in protest comes a dialogue. And the dialogue is recorded for us. And the dialogue says, Mr. Van Riebeek, we've been asking you now for three years, what are your plans? You know. Now listen, I'm paraphrasing, okay? We're used to having international visitors here. They normally leave. The longest stay was a year. That was the 1940, uh, excuse me, the, the, the 1647 visitors, the ship wrecked here, the Harlem ship, and they, they were here for 12 months, and then, but they eventually left. It's been three years now, man. You're still here. What's your plan? Because, you know, we, we're getting a bit worried. We notice that you've built a brick-making factory here. And you're building, you're manufacturing bricks. And you're building, not huts now, not clay little dwellings, but you're building dwellings 
made out of stone. So tell us, what's your plan? Van Riebeek's people, <laughs> in response to this was, listen, can, can, you just, can you just move your huts a little further away from us, please? So what do you mean, move it further away? And here's the classic line. From the Hottentots to the Dutch. This land belongs to us. And we will build our huts wherever we like. 9th of February, 1655. You can check it in the diary. So, that, oops, what I, what I that's sleeping probably. Alright, so where is this? Uh... So, this is the date I'm talking about. So they arrived in 1652, and in 1655, the Dutch settlers settled, because now they're building bricks. They're making bricks and building brick houses. And so they shift from being visitors to being settlers. And the hosts, the Hottentots shift from being hosts to protesters. We're now protesting against your presence here. What we need to know, and what the Hottentots did not know, is that Van Riebeek was given a very explicit mandate to take over the Cape. But his strategy, as dictated by the Dutch East India Company, and remember the title of our topic is this company here, the Dutch East India Company, which is the company Van Riebeek worked for. They gave him the mandate to take over the Cape, but use a, what I call, be nice to them policy. Do not harm the local people. Do not harm the animals. Be nice. Now, when are people nice to you? It's when they're dependent on you, isn't it? People are not arrogant with you if they need stuff from you. They're nice with you until they're no longer dependent on you. And so the be nice policy of Van Riebeek is what bedeviled this whole relationship. Oh, these white people are nice to us. But they must not tell us what, what is their plan. Now they're not telling us. So if people don't tell you what their plan is, you, you escalate the dialogue. And you protest. 1655. And from that point onwards, the Hottentot people, the Khoikhoi, the people of the Cape, imposed a trade ban on the Dutch. In other words, they refused to sell their cattle to the Dutch. But Ribic realizes this a couple of years later, he joins the dots and he says, ah, that's why they're not selling me their cattle. They're actually wanting to drive us back to Holland. He says that explicitly in his diary in 1657. He kind of, oh my goodness, now it makes sense. 
problem here for the Dutch settlement, they were very vulnerable. At some point in the diary, you see, well, at various points in the diary, you, you read, we've got six weeks of supplies left. What are we going to do? These people don't want to sell cattle to us. Van Riebeek, read the writing on the wall. These people are saying, go home. He's not going home. He's not reading. He's not reading the message. Okay. Now what do you do? Well, you escalate your relationships and you, you finally end up in a war. Now I want to fast forward to war and just pause there for a moment. So Khoi Khoi resistance to Dutch occupation or Dutch presence in Cape Town eventually resulted in war. Because dialogue doesn't help, being, staging a non-violent protest doesn't help, uh, doing the economic embargo doesn't help. Now what? And I've just finished uh, my next publication, which is sitting in that file there, if you want to have a look at it, which is a detailed analysis of this first war between the Khoikhoi and the Dutch. According to Mike, it's going to turn out to about a 300-page book, but it's a, it's a detailed account, a kind of an almost day-by-day, blow-by-blow account of that particular war. It was the first war between the, the, the locals and the Dutch. Of course, remember, they had a, the locals had a war with the Portuguese 100 years earlier. But this war become, sets the tone for all the wars that would follow. Now, let me just talk a little bit about all those wars that would follow. The Dutch eventually ruled the Cape for 143 years. 1652 to 1795, more or less 143, somewhere around there. And during that period of time, around 12 wars, 12 battles, 12 hectic skirmishes, however you want to call it, 12 situations of conflict where there was blood spilt, took place at various times during that 143 years. The Khoi, the Hottentot, lost all those battles. And all those battles was about land and cattle. Land and food, basically, because cattle was food. So for the Dutch, cattle wasn't wealth. Cattle was food. For the Hottentot, cattle was wealth. I'll give you an instance. When uh, Bartholomew Diaz, Diaz, how do you pronounce it? Diaz? Diaz, Diaz. When, when, when Bartholomew Diaz came to Mossel Bay in 1488, 1488, he describes what he sees. And he sees what he says is cattle for as far as the eye can see. Now, I'm only recently a farmer, and I'm not even a cattle farmer, I'm a, a fruit and vegetable farmer. 
But if, if you can see cattle for as far as your eye can see, I, I suspect the people who own the cattle are pretty wealthy. And it just so happened that those people were the local Koi Hottentot people. So we're talking about an indigenous population who in today's terms, we would call them billionaire cattle owners, the cattle barons. That's what they were. If you're owning hundreds and thousands of cattle, that's what you are. So cattle for the Hottentot was not food. It was wealth. You never read anywhere in the diaries of Van Rubik that the Hottentots were hungry or starving. There was never a shortage of food. In other words, there was no poverty. Isn't it amazing how things have changed? So there was no poverty. The people who were hungry and bordering on poverty were the Dutch settlers. Because they were denied access to this food. And they made it their business to get this food, even if it meant going to war. And that's how we need to understand the war between these two entities. There's a war, there's a big fight about this thing, this thing being, oh, so you're not leaving. All right, now let me, let me, let me do what I must do to, to chase you away. So, so what do you do to visitors who don't want to leave? The first thing you do, you stop feeding them. <laughs> They're going to go hungry, right? Um, and, and the visitors make a plan. They, they, they begin to steal your cattle. Pause there. The visitors begin to steal your cattle. Because remember, they didn't come with cattle on the ships. And so in the, in the, in the peace conference that, that, that concludes this war, this issue came up. This thing of the white people stealing black people's cattle. And the complaint, <clears throat> the complaint by the locals is that you, Van Riebeek, you have not punished these white people that stole our cattle. What the Hottentots did, they stole the cattle back. And so the, 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 the perspective in history is that the Hottentots are cattle thieves. That's, a, that's the dominant perspective you get from the historians. Really, if you own 10,000 cattle, and you steal four of them back from the white people. I mean, isn't there something wrong with that equation? Why would you steal four back and you got 10,000? Either you're very greedy, 
like a good capitalist, you know? Or there's a strategy at play to make sure that, listen, you get the message that you're not welcome here anymore. It's time to go. So at this peace conference, which resolves this, this war and this conflict, it's a fascinating conference, and that's what my whole book is about. It's about this two-day dialogue between 40 Hottentot leaders or Khoi Khoi leaders and the Dutch. And they're having a debate now. The war's finished. The Dutch have given amnesty to two of the big uh, revolutionaries, the Hottentot revolutionaries, they being Doman and Harry, Harry de Strandloper, that they will not be executed for their participation in the, in the revolution. And they are the interpreters, they, they have the language skills, they also happen to be the most educated of the Hottentot leaders, because they were educated internationally. Harry was sent to Batavia in, in 1631, for education purposes, and Doman, the younger guy, was sent to Batavia in 1657 for education purposes. So we're not talking about uneducated people here. We're talking about internationally exposed leaders who are now engaging with Van Riebeek in a post-war situation. So now they're at the peace negotiating table, <coughs> Excuse me, at the peace negotiating table, and there are 10 items being debated. I'll just share with you one or two of them. The one is, Van Riebeek says, Yeah, but listen, you people stole our cattle. And, and the Ottendot response is, No, 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 we didn't steal your cattle. We, 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 we stole the oxen that you used to plow the fields. Let us, Mr. Van Riebeek, don't be so generalist here. We, we are quite specific people. We, we stole, yes, but we stole your oxen. Why the oxen? Because the oxen was the modern-day tractor. Without an ox, you can't plow the fields. And so our mission was to cripple your economic capability. Our mission wasn't to kill people. And then Van Riebeek says, yeah, but you killed uh, Simon and the Felt, and you killed Kasper Brinkman, and, and these are the two, two big farmers, the Freiburger farmers, or the Freemen farmers, that was given land to grow crops. He says, yeah, unfortunately, uh, those guys got killed by us, with our bow and arrow and our Asa guys. But let us tell you what happened. You see, we went to go and steal, or reappropriate the oxen, and these guys tried to stop us. And, you know, if they had just left us, then they'd still be alive today. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, you're talking about naivete at its best. And it's fascinating to read. I'm not even making up the story. I, I quote that dialogue directly in my book. I said, but if he had just left us to take the oxen, they would be alive today. Van Riebeek says, but it's not your oxen. He says, yeah, but it's not your land. I mean, I mean, come now, you know. And there's this backwards and forwards. And so, eventually, the Hottentot delegation says to Van Riebeek, says, listen, listen, Van Riebeek, 
Understand this, man. You've come here, and you've taken the best pasture lands here that, that for centuries has been our grazing ground. Okay? We can have a debate about that. But, but here's something I want you, Van Riebeek, to consider. What would happen? What would happen if we, the Hottentots, got in a ship, went to Holland, and we took the best land in Holland, and then we took your cattle, and we put that cattle on that land, and we said that land is ours. I mean, really. It's like a Nando's advert that was withdrawn. Eh? It's exactly why the advert was withdrawn, by the way. It's just, are you crazy? No, 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 think about it, Van Riebeek. If we got on a ship and we went to Holland and did in Holland what you've done here, what would you say? He doesn't answer. In fact, there's a side note in the diary that says, what a ridiculous question to ask us Dutch people. Really? Ridiculous, eh? I would think, how sophisticated. And then he makes a note in the diary, Van Riebeek now, and he says, these people continue to debate this matter with me using an old-fashioned version of justice. They call it natural justice. Now bear in mind, Van Riebeek comes from a tradition of the Roman Dutch law. Yeah? And I looked at this thing, I said, wow. I wonder if South Africa knows this story. So early Khoi Khoi resistance against Dutch colonialism or Dutch occupation wasn't just about guns and bow and arrows and blood and so on. It was about conceptions of the world. It was about how do you interpret reality? Through what lens do you interpret reality? I'm going to end my presentation with those lenses. By this time, we're talking now 1660. By this time, the Hottentot people, or the people of the Cape, were given a, a name. Hottentots was the name. And the name came from, it is conjectured, probably a sound of a word that was said repeatedly as people danced around a fire. Now, you know, if you listen to you think, what is that? And, 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 and a diarist says, you know, it sounds like like that, that the German that is spoken there by those, those people in the, in the Swiss Alps. It sounds almost like that. Very... It's like, it's like they've got a growth in their throat. Now that's a pure linguistic comparative perspective on language. But very soon that label took on a moral tone. And those people that spoke like the Germans were now classified as, eventually, half-human beings. In fact, by the time we get to the 20th century, and the Oxford Dictionary, no less, 
we have these people defined, these Hottentot people defined as savages, as cannibals. Wow. How do you go from speaking a language that's similar to what they sound like in Germany to being a person that's now considered an animal? And if, you, if there are psychologists in the house, we talk about the othering of people. You, you, you make them so other that when you abuse them, you don't feel guilty about it. Because you, you, you're slaughtering something that's not human. And so this group, this Hottentot group of people, in their resistance to colonialism, articulated a different view of the world. A view of the world premised on a respect for humanity. I've got some very harsh criticisms about that because I say, how naive. If there was one thing that upset it, upset it, it's not a word, eh? Upset it. In the past. <laughs> if there's one thing that upset the Hottentot people, and you find this in this 1660 peace conference dialogue. They say to Van Riebeek, listen man, there's enough land here for all of us. It's almost like these Hottentots wrote the Freedom Charter. Ne? The land belongs to those who live in it. Right? So you hear that? This is 1660. They say, listen Van Riebeek, there's enough land here for all of us. Please man. Our problem with you, Mr. Van Riebeek, you did not ask man you were a visitor you came here and you, you come here and you pretend you're the owner you, you should just ask the second level of naivete I mean really you really expect these people to ask you <laughs> whether they can come you and I have the benefit now of knowing that the reason they came was to conquer they didn't come to ask. The fact that they were not met with armed resistance on day one meant and was interpreted by the Dutch as, well, they conquered. It was a bloodless coup. No, it wasn't a bloodless coup. The Hottentots were used to having people visit for a year or longer. Three years later, hey, 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 amba, 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 go, go, go home, please, man. And so, just to, 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 to complete my talk, the settlers then become enemies. The hosts, the Hottentot, go from protesters to become revolutionaries. And the Dutch declare a formal war against the Hottentots in 1659. And the dialogue I've just told you about, a debate happens in 1660 between the conquerors and the conquered. Between the winners and the losers. Here's the thing. The Hottentots don't approach this dialogue as losers. Another worldview mismatch. In the Hottentot world, in the indigenous world, there is no such concept as private property. This land belongs to everybody. And the chief will do the allocations equitably, and the grazing of the cattle happens so nobody starves, nobody dies. That's how we live. Hey, 
these white people came with the other view. Ne? And later they come with title deeds. A piece of paper that says, this piece of land now belongs to Mike. Really? I don't understand that. So what do I do? I bring my cattle and I park it there on Mike's lawn. And, and what does Mike do? <laughs> what does Mike do? Pulls out his gun. He shoots me. Hi, Wena. What's wrong with you, man? This land belongs to all of us. Ne? A, a complete mismatch of worldviews and understanding of the world. And that characterizes the conflicts between the Khoikhoi and the Dutch for that period of time. Of course, the same would happen with the British. It took the British another nine wars with the Kosa and the Zulu to eventually conquer them. And then, of course, the British also conquered the Afrikaners in, uh, in the Anglo-Boer War. They first lost, they lost the first war and they won the second war. It's the second Anglo-Boer War or the second South African War, however you want to call it, uh, becomes another battle. But that's for another lecture, another chapter of my book. So, let me summarize. Van Riebeck arrives in 1652. Eight years later, they declare formal war on the local people. And a year after that, there's a peace conference and there's a discussion about worldviews, ethics, morality, and so forth. And that discussion, ladies and gentlemen, I put it to you, that discussion is happening today in South Africa as we try to make sense of this debate around land, uh, what's it called? Expropriation without compensation. It's the same debate. And it's the reason I wrote the book. So I hope that's been helpful. I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you. Thank you, Ruben. I felt that we could go on a lot longer on this topic. It's quite, uh, quite absorbing. Um, there's a microphone over there, which you're happy to stand up and queue behind, keeping your social distance uh, according to COVID-19 protocols. So we take it very simple. You just stand up there in the queue, and you, each one takes a chance. To, you can either ask a question or make a statement. It's entirely up to you. And if you want to speak in Afrikaans, is it closer? Or is there anybody who can translate from closer here? Yeah. But um, feel free to speak. There are three official languages in the Western Cape. English, Afrikaans, is it closer? In the test, is closer? But um, I'm happy to entertain inputs in that language, provided we can get someone to help us translate into the global language, which is English. Just one point, Ruben, I wanted to say in response that struck me in the last part of your talk is this whole idea of natural justice. I think what fascinates me as a barefoot historian, I only did uh, history for matric, and I went on and studied language and literature, including Isiklosa, uh, I studied university, and majored in Klosa. One thing that struck me, something that's a lifelong habit for me, is this concept of ideology. This, this, this set of ideas that people live and die by. Mostly they die by it, but often they live by it as well. And what struck me about the period we're talking about, because I've tried to make a habit of looking at South African history in its global context, is at the time we're talking about in Europe, there was this so-called enlightenment that was coming in, starting in the Renaissance. Prior to the 1600s, and I often think Shakespeare was partly responsible for the idea, they had this thing of the divine right of kings, 
that the, the executive rulership of a particular nation was, was chosen by God and therefore whose decisions were not to be questioned. And that idea broke down, particularly in England, it started with the, with the execution of Charles I in the English Civil War in about the same period, 1640 to be precise. But the humanists of Europe, Voltaire and Rousseau and all the people that were the children or the fathers of the French Revolution, where the aristocracy was also assassinated, um, tells me that questions of justice, questions of natural justice as opposed to justice imposed from above, were starting to percolate the whole of European society. But with the Dutch East India Company and their officials, they were still operating on the idea of divine right and having a superior position in society relative to indigenous people, not only in South Africa, but also in Indonesia, uh, in South America, in South Asia. So when you look at the origins of conflicts in the 20th and 21st century, you can see the seeds of that conflict so beautifully displayed here in Cape Town, what became Cape Town, by these early interchanges between what were what the United Nations called first people and uh, colonists from elsewhere in the world. So Ruben, I really want to thank you for the, all of that. And if you take your positions at that microphone over there, you're welcome to participate. Thank you. We'll take your questions and discussion for 15 minutes. And if you want to go into tea, those of you who want to walk out halfway are welcome to do so. Um, hi, that was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for that uh, talk. Um, it's a pity there's not a fourth language in, in the Cape. Uh, San, is it? Would that be San? Uh, but, um, yeah, I'm not a historian. I'm a zero percent historian uh, uh, trained. But it strikes me that um, this situation is very similar to the, to the Americans, for example, uh, or the settlers in America who wiped out the Indians, basically. Uh, almost identical situation. So, it's, it's not, I don't think it's peculiar to the Dutch. Uh, you know, it was, you know, as you say, it was a sort of, um, I, I, what my thinking is, is that over many years of battles between peoples in Europe, uh, you know, you had tribes that came from everywhere and they, they, they daunted each other up. That was mm. how, what they did. You got their land, you took, them, took over. Mm. It happened for hundreds and hundreds of years. That was the natural way of doing stuff. Uh, you know, it's a pity. Uh, so it's almost as though the, the normal way of conquering was military. So it's, it's, a, it's funny that um, you're separating the natural justice from the military because it seems in Europe uh, they, were, they were almost the same thing, mm. uh, uh, unfortunately. Uh, one wonders why, when you want, one wonders first of all, why would a tribe try to take over another tribe in the first place in Europe? Mm. You know, what made the Huns come down and wipe, take, take over so many areas? Um, why did that happen? I don't know. But the point is that they only did it by military means, by fighting. Sure. So, you know, the mindset in so much of the world, I don't know about the Chinese in the East, but it seems to me the same sort of thing. The way that you took over, that you settled, was to mm. fight the people. Sure. That was it. So, um, you know, another view of this is that this is just absolutely natural. You come here, you want the place, you kill, kill everybody. That's, that's what happens. That's exactly right. And, but but uh, how, do, how does the locals respond to it? Oh, hey. well, 
You get killed. You, why you, you, you die. Ask? No, why you... don't you ask, man? <laughs> <laughs> don't don't be so violent, man. Don't be so violent. Just ask. Just ask. Yeah. Can you see the clash of worldviews here? So, so this is why people come with this, this history and trajectory of, of violent subjugation. And the locals are saying, but just ask, man. We'll give you. Don't be like that, man. Don't, don't be like white people, man. Just ask. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have you. a couple of cannons in the back uh, <laughs> yes. store there. No. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Cannon lawyers. Can I talk about Afrikaans? Yes, talk about it. I have a lot of things to say, and I have a lot of things to say. I have a professor. You talk a lot about it. They say it for Hulle het ooreengekom. Ja. Hulle het vir mekaar verduidelik. Hulle het mekaar verstaan. Ek wonder of hulle mekaar verstaan het. Ek wonder ook. Uh, jou opinie daar oor, wat het taal sal hulle bijvoorbeeld praat? Ek weet al was mense soos tolke, en jy het genoem van twee wat vroeg, uh, twee mannen van kooi wat vroeg betaal toe is om te ja. gaan uh, opleiding kry. Maar op wat manier het hulle gecommuniceer? Is daar nie groot misverstande gewees nie? En dan wil ek De dao, in die 16's. Maar het is nog altijd zo. Het is nog altijd zo. Mag je bij je opinie daarover zeggen? Ik denk dat het elkaar niet verstaan is. Dat is amper zo eenvoudig als dit. Absoluut. Ik denk de vraag is: wat was de language van communication? En kan we supposen dat er gewoon miscommunication was? En mistranslation. De short antwoord would be: yes, 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 en yes, en yes. Ik bedoel. You, you, you put an Afrikaans-speaking person together with an English person today. No, no, no. Let me rephrase it. You put an English-speaking white person today with an Afrikaans-speaking white person today and see if they understand each other. I mean, the short answer is the Anglo-Boer War. The one put the other one in a concentration camp and we haven't forgiven them since. That's how we have misunderstood it. So, back to, back to the 1600s. Van Riebeek makes a note in his diary, sir. And he says, it is amazing how many of these Hottentot people now speak Dutch. I mean, it struck me like a ton of bricks. Because I just assumed, well, it was, it was uh, uh, Harry, the strandloper, his, his indigenous name being Otsumatu, meaning the man, from the man who understands the ocean, strandloper, that's where it comes from. Uh, so yeah, it was him, and then it was uh, Doman, the young, the young Ottentot guy in, 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 in the fort there. But there were many others, and I document them from Van Riebeek's own words. Let me tell you how it worked out. Van Riebeek had a visitor, uh, a commander, like a Kokador, as we say in Cape Town. His name was Rickliff Van Goons. He was a, a appointed, a, a hectic official. Uh, for the Dutch East India Company uh, to India. And so he goes from Europe to, to India and they stop in Cape Town. And of course, Van Guns is Van Riebeek Senior and Van Guns chairs the local council meetings and, and they have a discussion. Van Guns is the one that, that proposed the building of the hedge, by the way. Easy. That's where that idea comes from. Anyhow, so they, they, they're out in the field. This is now Van Riebeek and Van Guns and a power Hottentotten or Utentus few local people. 
And the two of these Dutch, these two Dutch oaks are having a discussion about how they should build a canal from Musenberg, if you know Cape Town, from Musenberg along the current day M5, across the Cape Flats, right to Table Bay. And they wanted to turn the Cape into an island. All right. A couple of years later, there's an argument between Harry and Van Riebeek about this canal project, this hedge project eventually. And Harry, <laughs> says to Van Riebeek, hey, listen here, don't, don't tell me stories. You know, when you and Van Guns were talking about expropriating land, let me tell you, and he repeats to Van Riebeek, word for word, what they discussed. There was no misunderstanding there. This oak understood the language. He understood what they were saying. And what did, fund, what did Harry do as a protest action immediately thereafter? Very interesting. The, 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 the Ottentots used to graze their 20,000 cattle there on the slopes of Table Mountain. And then they would just move the cattle on. But this time, because he knew these oaks are wanting to cordon off the, the, the Cape Peninsula, they burnt, they set alight the, the cow dung. No? Uh, make sure you understand me. The cow shit. No? The bio biological warfare. They burnt it so that the Dutch couldn't use it as fertilizer in their gardens. Now, Bluxom, you talk about being innovative. Van Riebe complains bitterly about it. Because they used to pick up this fertilizer by the wagon loads. And now they don't have any more. But the Ottentos should have just killed them. But no, no, never mind. Uh, let's be nonviolent today. So the, the point is well made around communication. There's always room for misunderstanding. But I want to believe that there were sufficient language skills to ensure that these people quite clearly understood each other. And you picked it up from the side notes in Van Riebeek's diary. Where he says, these people are, are insisting to argue this way, but. And then he makes his notes. But, but thank you for the point. Next, next in line. Okay. Right, thank you. Thank you for your wonderful talk. Um, thank you. History that I took a long time to find out about, so thank you. My question to you is, does your research stretch right through to the Eastern Cape in terms of right up to the Cat River Rebellion and the figures in, from this population group that resisted? Because a lot of people, I think today, woke up and said, who's David Stierman? Yeah. So not to change the subject, but sure. it does deal with resistance. Absolutely. Just, I'm so happy that he's got his place in history, if you could help us. <laughs> Thank you, I will answer that. Next question. The David Stevenson question. No, thanks, thanks, Prof. It, it touches on what I wanted to touch on. First of all, I want to thank you for that. There's a lot of coy history coming to the mainstream. I think people like yourself are doing justice to that history. And I see young people here of coy descendants are beginning to learn. Because mm -hmm. we, we were in high school, I did history at high school, but I was never taught this. Uh -huh. We are thought about Shakespeare, people you don't relate to. Yeah. You know, so for 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 first time in post 1994, at least we've got people like you who are bringing Koi history to the mainstream. But I want to touch on what you touched about the the, the changing of names, yeah. the importance of language, the importance of names to what some of us call decolonization, because there was a lot of anger, 
especially from the white community that Kabeha doesn't tourists won't be able to pronounce the word. Mm-hmm. But it's a, but it's a quite word uh-huh. in my understanding. So so can you please touch on the importance of language, the importance of history, so that we're restoring with colonization with colonizing uh-huh. Africa back to its original state. Okay. Can you touch on that for me, thanks? Thank you. Will do. Morning. Uh, Morning. Two questions. One, where did the cattle come from originally? And number two, who sent Doman overseas to study? Okay. Uh, so let me, let me start with the last question first. Who sent Doman? Van Riebeek sent Doman to Batavia because he was a young, promising uh, interpreter at the court. And so he sent him on a, on a one-year study program. Let's call it a bursary to, to Batavia. Uh, where did the cattle come from? That's a good question. I don't know. I just found them here, you know. Um, uh, our first snapshot of, of the vastness of the cattle, uh, well, let me take a step back. I wrote my books based on recorded history. So I don't want to get into conjecture about architecture and Stone Age and this and that. I just say, here's this visitor. He's called Bartholomew Dias. He tells us what he saw is thousands and thousands of cattle. And the owners of that cattle were these people here. They called them Koi Koi or Hottentot. Okay. Now, where they got it, man, that's another story. I don't know. I've got, I've got some theories. But let's not sidetrack us from the fact that they were the owners of the cattle. That's number one. Thank you. We can come back to that. The, the, the question about uh, language. Did you hear uh, Mike's pronunciation of koi koi? Hoi hoi in. Hoi hoi in. The KH. Right? Now, how do you write it? You can either write it with a G, or a KH, or a X. And so when you read the literature in English, it gets a bit confusing until you try to say it. So the Choranaikwa comes from a chief called Chora, or Chora, depending how you pronounce it. And so the language issue is, is, a, is a critical issue. I did a, 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 the Khoi Khoi or Khoi Khoi language course last year. Man, my tongue went <laughs> ballistic. Um, but, but here's the takeaway from, from that language course. It was taught at UCT, and we brought one of the Nama uh, language teachers from um, Namibia. Uh, 
the, the clicks in the Hottentot language. The Tosa language borrows seven of those clicks. Now, here's the language expert here, so I, I tread carefully. The principle is simply that the clicking language is not the purview of the Nguni people. It comes from the First Nation people, the Hottentotten people, the Khoi Khoi people. Now that in itself is a shocker. It's like, oh my gosh. All right. Put that aside. You mentioned uh, a man by the name of David Stierman, which links to the Cat River Rebellion in that, that period of time. David Stierman. David Stierman. David Stierman. David is the Afrikaans or Dutch word for David. David is a biblical name. It's not a koi koi name. Uh, Stierman. <laughs> Driver. Stierman. Probably a herder maybe. Driving the cattle. He's a man that he bears the steer. He herds the cattle. His surname should have been David Herder or something. David Stierman. David Stierman was the leader of the Hottentot Revolution around 1799. Like, really? Now, if you want to know a little bit more about that, hang around with me at about 4 o'clock because the Stierman family is coming to see me here uh, to talk about all of that history. So, so language is a critical issue. By the end of the Dutch period, the indigenous language became subjugated and Dutch became the dominant language. When the British came in, English became the dominant language and the Khoi Khoi or the Hottentot people had to learn another language, which is why in Cape Town they speak English and Afrikaans bilingually because the two colonizing forces that came brought the language and they brought their church. So half of the colored people belong to the Dutch Reformed Church and the other half belong to the Church of England because the England people came. It's not a mistake. And the England people, the England colored people speak English. Very sophisticated, you know, like the English. And the, and the other part of the colored people speak Afrikaans. And, 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 they, they, and they are the, more the farmland people because the Dutch were farmers. And the English were soldiers, you know, and bureaucrats. Same cultural base, but different languages. English and Afrikaans. And, and where's the indigenous language? Well, it was illegal and considered a criminal offense to speak the indigenous language. You could get your tongue cut So you're not going to speak a language if you know that they're going to cut your tongue out. That's how vicious the cultural imperialism was in our country. Catriver, Mr. Catriver Rebellion, the answer to you is yes. I don't know what the question was, but the answer is yes. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, the, uh, the, uh, I've, I've written a two-volume work. The first volume 
uh, you'll see it here, is, is the unspoken history and heritage of these people that are called colored. So that's volume one. That history has to be located in a much bigger history of South Africa, and that's what I do with volume two. And volume two covers 500 years of history in South Africa. But I describe it as 500 years of intimacy. You see, we were not enemies. Uh, you know, us and the white people, we, we had children together, you know. I mean, the, the enemies don't have children together. So really, South Africa's history is, is a family fight. That's what it is. And I want to reframe this whole context of war and peace, because that's the theme of this conference. It's a family dispute. Now, of course, there's members in my side of the family that don't want to know that white people are family. And white people certainly don't want to know they've got family this side of the line. And sometimes you must just take a little look at the bums and the eyes and the ears and the nose and the hair and say, hey, hey, I can see, I can see something here. <laughs> so, so this thing about racial arrogance and um, man, find a way just to put it aside and find things that are common between us. And if we can do that, we will bridge this divide of antagonisms that, 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 that causes us to go to war. So I, I invite you, first of all I invite you to buy my books, but I, never mind that, I didn't say that. Uh, <laughs> I invite you to think differently about our history, about this notion of war and peace. Think about it as a family feud. Thank you. Okay, um, so we're proceeding to tea now, and also um, David Bristow will be talking quite logically in a way uh, of the transition from Freiburgers to Trekboers, including the southern coast and so forth, and then immediately after that, at 12 o'clock, uh, David Hilton Barber will talk about 1820 settlers and conflict in the Eastern Cape, and then after lunch, we're very privileged to have the Institute for the Healing of Memories. Um, Father Michael Lapsley um, was instrumental in finding this. Very similar work to what Ruben does. Ruben knows them well. They'll be talking about their work with military veterans. And then finally, I have the, the dubious honor of speaking about the apartheid nuclear bomb uh, at four, uh, four o'clock, I think it is, or half past three, um, which is my own personal uh, experience over 40 years of working to both uncover the weapons industry in South Africa but also to oppose civilian nuclear power stations. So it's like my own private war as it were. But I'm really grateful to the professor for having enlightened us on this somewhat clouded history. Um, it's great to see the history coming to the fore um, and then I wish you a happy tea and I hope some of you will stay for the next session and also to come tomorrow and partake <coughs> at two o'clock tomorrow afternoon on a discussion on the, our own Truth and Reconciliation Commission which will, well the, the morning is devoted to Angola, there are three sessions on Angola, the Angolan Civil War which I'm also a veteran and then um, in the afternoon there's a discussion on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and then uh, Professor Mark de Jong will close 
the festival with a presentation on the Anglo-Boer War in the Karoo, and he, as a professor of anthropology, will discuss very briefly, perhaps in a sentence or two, the, the, the question, why do we go to war? What's it all about? But I think it's a beautiful parenthesis or bracket on the festival because Professor uh, Richards has actually opened up this whole thing about lands and property and wealth and ideology. There's a lot of reasons why people go to war, sometimes just for the love of it. Thank you. Is that going to work for you? Hello, Mike. Is that... <laughs> 